Okay, before we start, uh, Matthew and I have made a disturbing re- discovery, which is that Lauren swallows her gum, like, <laughs> habitually. And uh, we're worried about her future medical expenses, so maybe we'll start a Patreon, and you guys can uh, contribute to Lauren's future surgery. Oh, maybe Or an x-ray, even. Yeah, or an x-ray. And we can, like, do a little fun prize to who guesses how many pieces of gum are still in her... Stomach. That's right, because it takes seven years to dissolve in your stomach, Lauren. Yeah, that's definitely science. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, it is. It is. I don't know that's why old, you're sounding so sarcastic, Miss Sarcastic. Uh, we're just worried. Maybe that gum has gone to your head. Maybe it's clogged up in my brain, actually. That's good. Could be. <laughs> I have, I have, it's got a lot to do in seven years. Have you ever heard of wet brain? I have gum brain. <laughs> gum, gum brain. Gum brain. And I fucking love gum, so it's not going to stop. <laughs> I don't, for the record, I don't always swallow my gum, just if it's a particularly tasty thing. <laughs> like, if I like the flavor a lot, I'll you're swallow not, it. But if it's not doing just yourself like, any favors. If it's just like regular mint gum, I'll spit it out. Okay, all right. listeners and welcome to life narrated the podcast about life and the stories we tell my name is emily and i am your internalized self-doubt my name is lauren and i'm your big brother my name is matt and i'm your benevolent overlord (laughs) and today we're going to talk about dystopian media um none of us particularly like dystopian media i think yeah so we're gonna start by it with a definition of dystopia yeah so the word dystopia itself is the opposite of utopia. So if utopia is paradise, you could think of dystopia as being like hell on Earth. Um, The thing about it, though, is when we talk about dystopian, like, literature or, like, media, we usually aren't thinking so much of, like, hell on Earth, but we're thinking more of, like, just an undesirable uh, new world order so, so what I think of is, like, a corrupted utopia. Right. There's almost always some kind of corruption. Something's not right. But that we also see a theme of this, like, propaganda. So um, that that fuels this idea of this this is utopia. Yeah. But there, it, there's corruption afoot. I would like to read an actual definition of dystopia because I think we're going to have a lot of discussion about what a dystopia actually is. Yeah. And so it's oh, good to like, start you from... You don't a, like my definition? I don't. <laughs> it was good. Okay, okay. Well, for the record, if you Google dystopia, do I, it. I'm going do to. It. I want to read the actual one because it gives us a, a place to start from in which we can like start like telling each other what we think You're going to cut all is. this out, Emily. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> we're Googling dystopia. Oh, okay. We're actually doing it right now. Okay, cool, cool, cool. An imagined place or state in which everything is unpleasant or bad, typically a totalitarian or environmentally degraded one. So, okay, so environmentally degraded and totalitarian, where everything is... Unpleasant. Unpleasant or bad. I have okay. some, I have some uh, side definitions, too. The, some okay. main features of dystopian is, like, mass culture manipulates people to conform to status quo. And okay. dystopian societies use forces to exploit cultural industry to disguise coercion as free choice. That's another one. And then I have a couple mm-hmm. of themes and symbols that are common in dystopian novels. 
Um, it usually involves mass surveillance, behavioral conditioning, exploitation of leisure, reduction of language, in, uh, internalized self-discipline, repressed or controlled emotions. And it, it always is this thing where like agents of power are invisible and difficult to contest. I think that's a good uh, part of it. So that definition is, is great, and I like two particular things about it. Uh, the exploitation of leisure and the, uh, the agents of power are invisible and difficult to contest, which both describe yeah. the world we live in today. Facebook is the leisure that is exploited, and uh, the impossible to prosecute Russian connections in the current government are uh, the... And you know, when I was writing that down, the one thing that I didn't understand was the exploitation of leisure, but that is a perfect example. Like, I didn't, I was like, I'm going to write this down, but I don't quite understand what this means. But now that you've mentioned Facebook, I'm like, that is exactly what it means. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's making money off of things people do for free. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Your Google searches, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, you looked at this one time on Amazon on accident? <laughs> We're going to blast this all over your Facebook feed. Yeah, or the uh, your ISP is being able to sell your browsing history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's actually an example of the confluence of both of those yeah. things I just mentioned. I want to uh, mention real quickly that we had a meeting, an all-hands meeting at my job, and um, w- someone asked the CEO, why are we advertising on Breitbart? And he's like, we don't advertise on Breitbart. Why were you on Breitbart? Which is like, because Amazon wow. Amazon advertises on Breitbart, and so you go on Amazon, look at our products, and then you go to Breitbart, you will see ads for our products. Right, because it, it knows what you want. Yeah, wanted. exactly. <laughs> so he was knows. like, turn that around. He's like, we don't advertise on Breitbart. What are you doing on Breitbart? That's like the most insane thing to ask. Like, I'm I getting know. information. Like, yeah. Like, know thy enemy, yeah. bro. <laughs> well, I think he was just being, uh, he didn't expect an answer. He just was being. So, oh, he was just being yeah, facetious. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's interesting. And listeners should know that Emily works for. No, uh, <laughs> listeners don't need to know that. No. no. Never mind. She doesn't. She definitely <laughs> doesn't work for. That's definitely true. Okay, anyways, let's get on with the, the dystopia now that we have some good definitions to work on. Yeah, so what we were talking about before we started recording was, like, the difference between the two types of dystopian that covers, which is, like, hell on earth and then the the corrupted utopia. So, like, Mad Max, for instance, I would not consider that a dystopia because it's, like, hell on earth. But then... Yeah. That but- it, so then that would be... So we're talking about two different things, right? There's like a yeah. post-apocalyptic kind of thing, which is like the unstructured hell on earth where like the world has gone to hell and like you could die at any minute just because survival is difficult. Right. Whereas a dystopia, in my mind anyways, is more that like someone has specifically engineered a culture in which you are exploited and could die at any time if you don't go along with the status quo. Right. Or something else bad could happen to you at any time. Yeah. And we, and we talked about um, when Matt got to my house... I mentioned to you, like, the more I thought about it, so I looked up, like, the differences between dystopia, apocalyptic, and post-apocalyptic. And so dystopia, if you think of it, you know, is what we were just saying. That is what it is. If you look at what apocalyptic uh, literature is while that apocalyptic event is happening. So, so like it's a like, zombie apocalypse right. story. It's actively happening. The right. end of the world is actively happening within the story. Okay. Whereas post-apocalyptic is usually can be years or even generations after said event and how the human race is like coping or how things have changed. So dystopias can 
B, post-apocalyptic in the sense that one of the um, examples I used was like another world war could set off, you know, a very apocalyptic-esque scenario. And then as a result, you have this dystopian society that comes in and is like, okay, can't have people feeling anything because that's when people push red buttons, Mm -hmm. right? Um, so it's kind of a square rhombus situation. Yeah, so like a, uh, dystopias like often arise out of post-apocalyptic situations yeah. as part of the narrative. Yeah. But they aren't necessarily. It's not about the post-apocalyptic. Like the right. narrative is not about like surviving after an event. Right. It's about surviving within the culture that has grown up around the aftermath of this event. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it's what happens after survival is no longer an issue. Right. right. Yeah. Right. I think that's a. Oh, hi. <laughs> Emily, you're I not. I think that's such a good way to put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I actually, oh, I should have read this book before we um, uh, recorded, but there's this book uh, that is somewhere in my room, and it's called, <laughs> hold on a second, I got this. It's called Station Eleven by <laughs> Emily St. John Mandel, and it's about that. Um, and the whole theory of the book is like survival is insufficient so it's about how people still engage in art after an apocalypse but that is not about oh, this it is not a dystopian I think it's just a post-apocalyptic book um, but yeah so let's talk about like how how this genre came to be if you are to go on Wikipedia <laughs> one of the first things you'll notice under the uh, the genre of post-apocalypse is uh Gulliver's Travels, right? Yeah, so I did. Uh, yeah, again, I don't. I don't know if we've ever said this on the show. We do really basic searches, <laughs> so a lot of this is based on what we're interested in and just learning a little bit more through like the major like Google with yeah, Wikipedia like, channel. You too could be a media expert. You too, <laughs> and then and then it's our opinions, right? Discussed yeah. here. So I literally went to Google and typed in. A list like dystopian literature and a Wikipedia page popped up that gave me this really nice list broken down um, by like year. And yeah, the first one was like 18th century, and I was like, oh, cool. And it was Gulliver's Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Damn. (laughs) Gulliver's Travels. That one. Yeah. It's your gum mouth. It's your gum brain. (laughs) I swallowed it already. Damn. Gum brain. This is a serious listeners. We need to help her. Help Lauren. Hashtag help Lauren Gumbrain. Gumbrain. <laughs> Hashtag save um, Lauren. <laughs> so save Ferris. Gulliver's Travels. There mm, we go. All nailed right. it. <laughs> uh, and and so I'd never read that book, and Matt has. So I was kind of like, huh, that's really interesting to me. What little I know about it was, yes, it was a book written a while ago, and then the Jack Black movie, which I didn't. <laughs> I did not watch. I didn't it. watch that either. I think, but it's the only two things I knew about it. But Matt had read it, so, so yeah. In Gulliver's Travels, uh, is you may or may not know, is about a guy who goes and sails the world in search of new lands, and it's kind of like a a travelogue of his weird adventures in these places that obviously don't exist. They're all fictitious, but he, each of the lands he comes to um, has some really cool thing about it, but also a lot of really bad things about it. And um, in a sense, each one is its own like small little dystopia. So for instance, he comes upon this land where everyone is like ginormous. They're huge. They're giants. And uh, he is... Uh, and for some reason, whatever reason, in this land, in the culture, it's like very prized to be small. <laughs> so the smallest person is like a very famous person and very like 
well-respected at court. And so, as uh, not a giant, he's instantly the most popular, famous person <laughs> on this island because no one's ever seen someone so small. That's strange. I just, real quick, like, why is are they the most popular? Like, just because? It doesn't really... It's like a... Yeah, it's like Little Sebastian. Okay, all right. Bless I get his it. heart. <laughs> if you mention Little Sebastian, Sebastian. <laughs> like, I get it. Um, it's how, like, yeah, we all love tiny things. Yeah. Come on. So, but anyways, the, the person he displaces as the smallest person, like, this seems great for a while, right? Like, he's, like, in the lap of luxury. Everyone gives him everything he wants. He has an audience with the queen at any time. Mm. But the person who used to be the smallest suddenly starts trying to kill him. And oh. as a giant, it's pretty easy for that guy to kill him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... Um, it becomes like a, a like very apparent that the the politicking of that of that particular culture is not only like not good for for progress but deadly to most of the people there. Yeah, and so like in the way that's its own dystopia. But there's like lots of other examples, and so the thing that's like most important to realize about this is that um, as the first like quote unquote dystopian novel on display here, it's not really a fully formed dystopian idea. It's starting as, like, social commentary and yeah. political commentary and satire about the things that were happening during that time period. Right. Like, you know, lambasting the different courts, of the different kingdoms of, in the area. Because this was written in, like, 1726, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this was, like, there's height of, like, European monarchies and, you know, yeah. and, and that kind of, like... Um, like political maneuvering and, yeah. and court like everybody politics. wanted status. That was the only way to yeah, so move up in the world. It started this the genre um, or maybe subgenre if you can call it that started as like an as like a way of like uh, socially lambasting um, the the current political climate and things that are going on uh, in the world politically. Okay, and it wasn't like um, it, no one set out to make like a sci-fi book, right? This guy just kind of like wanted to say some things about his his government, but, like, do it in a way that, like, maybe his government wouldn't hang him for. <laughs> yeah, and, like, that's kind of the same thing that Shakespeare did. Like, all of his all of his plays have some sort, sort of element of social commentary, but they all take place in, like, a land far, far away. And so it's like, <laughs> this isn't us, but it is us. <laughs> like, yeah, right, exactly. these are Italians. Those Italians are crazy. <laughs> these are Danes. So, Danes are just... So feisty. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it's important to note that, like, that is kind of how... Um, this genre got started, and to this day, it's still often a um, a commentary on the things that are happening in the world. Like, yeah, I think it's fair to say that, like, I think it's <clears throat> fair to say that dystopian uh, media is sci-fi, sure, for yeah, the most usually. part. But it also does fall into that social commentary and satire still. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, and political commentary, and like, uh, the one of the ways we can tell this is because of like. The very close uh, representation of like Nazi Germany and like North Korean regimes that happen in uh, dystopian books and novels, just like the big banners and like the the fealty to your overlords yeah. and I think all this stuff is like very authoritarian. I think it's very telling that the the heyday I would say of dystopian literature was during like uh, World War Two. And um, because interesting because or just after I guess because 1984 was again written in 1948, um, <laughs> uh, which is why it's called 1984. Right, uh, so far into the future. Yes, yeah, so Incredible. far into the future. And um, do you guys know when uh, Brave New World was written? 
Brave New World was written in the 30s. Okay. 32. And that's, yeah. you know, when Hitler was coming to power. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think definitely that has been good fodder for um, dystopian literature, like Hitler specifically. But mm-hmm. there's been others. Uh, we were talking about North Korea, for instance. That is definitely, you know, very rich fodder. Because it was funny because when the uh, Kim Jong-il died... Like, he treated... His people are, like, starving. There's famine. You know, they they have work camps. Their entire, like, uh, Olympic soccer team... Or, no, their, so- their national soccer team that went to the World Cup, since they lost, they all went into work camps. Like, this is not a really great place. But when Kim Jong-il yeah. died, everyone just lost their shit. Like, there was just people crying in the street and, like... You know, a couple people committed suicide. There was just a lot of, like, a expression of sadness over this leader who, you know, was horrible. But it's... Someone mentioned to me that it would be kind of like, this is the only acceptable expression of emotion that is allowed. And so they're not really crying for Kim Jong-il. They're crying for themselves and for, like, what has happened to their country. And, like, this is the only time when it is, like, socially acceptable to show those emotions. Well, in you addition, know. like, what else are you going to do at that time? Like, if you pretend to be, if you're happy, like, you have, even if you're not sad in that case, you kind of have to pretend to be That's sad. That's true, yeah, So yeah, that, yeah. like, the Gestapo don't come and round up your family. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and then now Kim Jong-un is is doing his thing, which hopefully we will not. in Malaysia. Oh, God. I hope we don't go to World War with North Korea. This is something that weighs on my mind. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, that, that's, that's one that, like, they could get away with and justify, and like no one would be like, "Yeah, don't yeah. Like, spare those really nice North Koreans," you know. Very few like, people, despite the fact that like would stop never, us. never won a war at all at all. Yeah, but, but like, like the the ma- that, yeah. majority of North Koreans are subsistence farmers. Like they don't even know what exists outside of North Korea. It's just, it's like, oh, it would be like joining a basketball game as like an NBA player, and everyone else in the basketball game are like three year olds. And like, are we are we having a Space Jam comparison? <laughs> I was like, like I immediately like the Monsters <laughs> and the coach. The Monsters lost. And the coach of That's the three true. year olds is like this really horrible person, and it's like driving them forward. But like, they don't really want to be there. They don't want to. The coach yeah. is a dance mom. <laughs> yeah, the coach is a dance mom. So I don't know. Smile, Vanessa. And that is, ow, that is not to say that North Koreans are three year olds, but just that they don't want to do this and like. Yeah. Well, and additionally, like, how would they even, like, I can't believe they would be able to, like, put up much of a resistance, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, they may have nuclear bombs, but, like, what else do they have? Yeah, like a jeep, yeah. you know, something, they like a tank, maybe. only have... Whereas we have literal robot drones well, that we can drop why, on their country, and, like, they can't do anything against us. And that's us. why it's so scary, right? Because that's their only recourse, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. It's this intense, like, really intense thing. It's not like, you know... Yeah, they don't have okay, a we're gonna A, B, C. They only have a D. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. It's just going to escalate immediately. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. Yeah, I think, yeah, this Bringing is, it back. But, and, it, yeah. and it's important for us to touch on these things because this is where that inspiration comes from. Right. We'll get another dystopian novel uh, pretty soon, I'm sure. Right. They were just going out of style, but, like, I feel like now is the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Start writing, Emily. <laughs> yeah. Well, like even in our even in our own country, I think there's that kind of like, what yeah. the hell yeah. is going yeah. on? Yeah. What, what the hell about. is going on? You know. And it's so, interesting because um, a lot of people um, in the Middle East, you know, you see these like demagogues and like, for instance, in Libya, they had uh, what's his face, Muammar Gaddafi uh, was, uh, you know, bananas, and like nobody in Libya, Gaddafi, like. I don't know, he's a dictator, so they didn't clearly elect him. You want to ask these people, like, how did how did this happen? How did you let this happen? And now I want to ask Americans that as well. Like, how did this happen, and how did you let this happen? But, like, this is how it happened. It, like, everyone's like, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. It just, it slowly <laughs> happened. And I, you know, it's not like one day we were fine and then the next day we were in a dictatorship like it was a slow slide yeah it's the the frog in the pot kind of thing where it's like oh this one liberty can go away and this other one liberty can go away and then we'll just hire this guy to be president he's like kind of crazy but like he's fine he's fine yeah wait wait what is the frog in the pot thing oh the the idea if you like put a frog in a pot it's actually not true it's like an urban myth but the, the the saying is if you put a frog in a pot and you slowly boil the water while he's in the pot he won't move, and he'll just boil to death because he doesn't realize that things are getting worse and worse. Okay, because like, it's a gradual thing. Yeah, like he'll exactly. just yeah. he'll like adjust to it, and then before he knows it, it's boiling water. It's yeah. boiling, and he can't move. Which yeah. it, again, like Matt okay. said, is not is not true. But <laughs> it's a pretty great, sure that frog will run. It's but... a great idiotism for yeah. yeah, yeah. People idiot. believe it to be yeah. true, and it's, it makes a good saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when we so. I don't know if you guys are ready for this, but like jumping into, as we've been talking, I'm just like, holy God, there's so many examples of this in dystopian stories that are currently going on. So I do have one more thing to mention before we go on to media. I wanted to talk, I've been reading um, Born a Crime by Noah, um, Trevor Noah, mm. and he talks a lot about apartheid South Africa. Yeah, that's and a how, good example. Like how... He basically—I don't know if this is true or he was being metaphorical—but he said that they sent out scientists to other like racist places and like took the bet like for to America and to Australia and like just took the best of their mechanisms and like applied it to South African culture <laughs> and like I think probably he was being metaphoric, but like because um, I don't think racist scientist is a thing like <laughs> science of racism. I don't know, but he. Basically, there were codified laws for all of the different levels of people. There was codified laws if you were black. There was codified laws if you were colored, which is, in this terms, it means mixed, black and white. And there were codified laws if you were white. And, like, they also made it illegal for white people and black people to sleep together. Like, illegal. So that's up to five years in jail if you're caught. And they had a police force that would be looking in your windows at night to just check if you're... Getting busy with someone of a different race. That's wild, considering because they had, like, a a colored category. So, like, like, where do those people come come from? from? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, like, it was was very much, there was also parts of town where you could live if you were black, and parts of town you could live if you were white. And, basically, if you were black, you were supposed to live in the homeland, which is, like, the the country, the, the homeland of your tribe. And then... There's no jobs out there, so you would have to work in the city, but you couldn't live in the city because that was illegal. So they would make these townships outside, just outside of town, and there's only one entrance in and one entrance out, one entrance out, 
So it was like a bottleneck, and it was made to be bombed. Like, it's basically, you can't get out if some sort of disaster happens. So they can easily... Control, you know, yeah. Control you. Not only that, but, like, you are not really allowed to live there permanently. It's it's more like you're renting a place there, and then you can get deported if you do something that is not like legal so if you do something to create a disturbance they're like actually you don't really live here this is borrowed land so we're going to deport you back home even if you were born and raised there they'll be like you have to go to the homelands now because that sounds like a lot like something something happening here (laughs) in america what is it i can't think of what it is oh that's right it's a uh, immigration reform yeah yeah so So much for the dreamers a lot, and it, like also, you know, indigenous people. It sounds a lot like how they were treated yeah. in Canada and in America. So it's just like this whole, and it was interesting to hear about Trevor Noah's story because his, his mother, he keeps on saying she wasn't afraid of anything, and she like lived in the city illegally, um, and kind of got help from prostitutes as to how to circumvent that issue, <clears throat> and like. She just did what she wanted and, like, found a way to do it. And I think, like, she is a dystopian hero. <laughs> like, <laughs> honestly. I, anyway. She sounds like it. By Trevor Noah. Um, she also had a mixed baby, and she did it on purpose. It wasn't like she got pregnant by accident and was like, oh, I'm going to have this baby. She was like, you and me, we're going to make a baby, and it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> and, like, she didn't even marry this guy. She didn't want to. She just wanted a baby, and she wanted a mixed baby. <laughs> she, like, went out and got herself one, I guess. And she, she did. She went out and got but, herself like, one. But, like, can like, you imagine being, like, her friend or part of her family and just being like, What are you doing? You are my God! You are so... <laughs> You are off the chain right now. And, like, <laughs> yes. you know, it's like we can look back on that and be like, she's fucking amazing. And she yeah. is. Like, don't yeah. get me wrong. But, like, but in the in the context when everybody else is scared and everybody else yeah. is, like, weighed down with this fear and this, like, gotta play by the rules. Like, her doing what she wanted was probably, like, like I love you, but get the fuck away from me. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like. And I think two things about this that are, like, really affecting for specifically Trevor Noah's experience. First of all, he wasn't allowed to be seen in public with his father. Like, he could be arrested, or not he, but his mother or his father could be arrested if he was seen in public with either of them, really. So he had very few friends growing up because he couldn't go outside and play with his friends. Um, And one time he was playing in the park, and his mother and his father were there, and they were kind of, like, standing apart, so it wasn't clear, you know, that they were there together. And then he started running up to his dad and went, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And his dad ran because he didn't want to get arrested. Aww. And, like, poor little Trevor Noah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, like, things like that definitely. I bet you there's some really bombing um, dis- African dystopian out there, like, dystopian novels. Yeah, probably. Yeah, so As just to clarify, yeah, this was real shit that happened. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about stories. Right. Like, yeah. But, like... That's important to note. It's like the stories are famous and like really good pieces of literature, but also like they are almost literally based on things that were happening in real life yeah. like history. Yeah. So like if you like dystopian novels, go read a book, you know, like <laughs> or a history book um, specifically. I did remember, <laughs> sorry, I remember what I was going to say and it is connected to dystopian. Like his grandmother, I mean, um, 
you know, hitting your kids was a common thing uh, in this country. Still and is. And so his... He still is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his, you know, his whole family, they, you know, if you did something wrong, you got your ass whooped, basically. And his mother had no problem whooping his ass. But his grandmother was like, I don't know how to hit a white child. And she... He he burned down somebody's house, okay? To this day, he... he uh, maintains that he didn't actually do it, but like I, I heard the whole story, and he totally did that. He totally burned down this person's house, and like intentionally. His grandmother, what was it intentional or was it like? No, no, no. It was do- definitely an accident. Okay, so it was an accident, but it was like his actions. But he was he was a naughty kid, and his grandmother just couldn't beat him because she's like, I, I can't touch a white child, and it was this kind of internal racism mm. that was like really what was the effect of all of these rules like he's white and so he can't like i i don't have the right to hit him basically so all of these uh were you know taken inspiration from actual historical events and let's start talking about uh the media i think uh, one of the most famous is uh 1984 um yeah go ahead uh so while we talk about these i want to keep in mind or just like pose the question that like is it still a dystopia if there's only like a few members of the society that are are hurt? And how many members of the society does it take for to be hurt before it's a dystopia? So for instance, that's interesting. Like um, there's one on here, A Brave New World. I think that's the one where everyone has sex all the time, right? Everybody's totally cool with it. And everybody, <laughs> literally to a man except for the main character, John. is all about it. They are well, the happiest people. Well, and they're so, on drugs, right? Well, okay, so I, don't know, I forget that part. So, Bra- so Brave New World. There's what we were talking about, kind of before, where's like there's like the outside, which is more like primal living, and then there are like this established cities. So, um, the main character John comes from one of these like uh, outsider like villages like literally like imagine a fence and everybody's on the side of the fence is like savages and that's how they kind of refer to them um so he comes into the city and so he being he's being raised with this concept of like like love and jealousy and like commitment and all these things and then he comes into the kind of new society where everyone it's very much like children are grown in bottles, and then you you raise children that but that are like uh, what's the in vitro, in not vitro. In, yeah yeah so it's kind of like test tube babies basically right okay. and um and sex is talking about that like ex- exploitation of leisure sex every like basically everybody's on birth control so you can just have sex with you know and people do and like good. it's like the sounds main good. form of recreation yeah yeah and they they have like sensory films if I'm rem- remembering correctly which are basically like uh, virtual reality. So, you know, you put on this thing and you can see and feel and hear everything. And he's completely freaked out about this because he has this, like, he really likes this girl and she's she's kind of like, oh yeah, let's just, you, you want to you do it? And he's like, what? Oh God, you know, like yeah. he can't. But ultimately, I mean, it's a little more complex than that, but like ultimately he just, he can't handle it. Yeah. It's like he knows too much to go back to the quote unquote savage world, but he can't adapt to this New world because that doesn't make sense to him either. So what ends up so, happening is he like goes. I think if I remember correctly, he goes and like lives his own solitary life, like alone. But then, as in so doing, becomes like some kind of like attraction, like a, a tourist attraction. And and ultimately, and spoiler, he yeah. kills himself. He hangs himself because oh, okay. he can't stand right. being a tourist attraction 
or in the Savage World or in the the regular world. And I guess my question is that like he's the only one you can't get with the program. Like, is it still a dystopia or is it just a utopia <laughs> that one guy doesn't like? That's a good point. And like part of this is like a lot of dystopians are talking about the they like are meant to point out, I think, a social ill. And I think for this one, the social ill that it's pointing out is, like, promiscuity. Sure. And like, that's pretty I, obvious, yeah. I'm like... And I think there also is, like, a very intentional ignorance, but, like, what you were talking about with, like, the self-imposed racism, there's, like, this self-imposed ignorance of, like, so it's like, oh, we're going to live in the cities, and we're going to completely ignore the other communities like, quote-unquote, savage communities. Like, so we're just going to pretend like that's not there. And we're going to go about our lives in the, you know, in, in this framework that works for us and ignore these other problems just because. Like, you know, so there's there's some kind of ignorance that's either being, like, self-imposed or intentionally keeping the public ignorant, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of them have a certain level of yeah ignorance that needs to be maintained i'm just i've never read this book so i didn't realize what it was about and now i'm like i don't like this <laughs> because it is like it is kind of saying like uh when everyone becomes a whore then the world is sure. shit except except one person it's just one person well and you should like li- you should keep like think about it in context too it was written like what like 1930 something 19 19- uh Something like that. So it was written a long time ago, and, like, those ideas were a little bit more prevalent and a little bit, like, it's a little bit less... Well, I mean, and, like, so the social ill is clearly what he's responding to is, like, birth control and, like, free love. In which case, go fuck yourself. Well, yeah, Um. absolutely, right? But, like, it's an important book for for the time. No, I agree. And and for the genre. But, like, and you can't, like, it's hard, you can't... I think we've talked about this before. Like, you can't judge media by the current frame of reference like right. you have to judge it by the time in which it was it was like absolutely available. yeah mm-hmm. you know? and that's true and that i think that's a similar like the author clearly saw this as something that was going to destroy the fabric of their society and in other cases uh you know for instance um in 1984 propaganda and like uh fake news basically is what is mm. destroying the fabric of their society um yeah, and let's in 1984, for instance, there's also, like... It's funny because there's two classes of people in 1984. There's, like, the party members who live this really constricted life. And they just have so many rules. A lot of them are, like... They're in part of this, like, chastity club. And, oh, yeah. like, they just live a really constricted life. And then... That's a bummer. The, <laughs> I know. There's the proles... And they're just, like, living their life. And the main character... And they also live in the same society, but they they don't have as many rules. I mean, they, they can't drink gin, and the party members can drink gin, but, like... Well, yeah, they have, like... They don't have as many uh, privileges either. Right, but, I mean, privileges that don't really mean anything, like drinking gin or... Um, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. They don't have, like, fancy jobs. But, yeah, and they're like they're destitute, kind of. Like from what I understand, yeah. they were kind of like poor and like they didn't have any sort of luxury. Whereas like they're like, like serfs. Yeah, they're like with serfs. The bottom they're, of the the fifth, they, party and, members. And their neighbors, their neighborhoods often get bombed. 
Like, yeah. That's another thing. It doesn't... Bombs don't ever Apartheid. drop in the... Apartheid. The, <clears throat> yeah, bombs don't ever drop in the um, party members' neighborhoods, you know? Well, I think you could argue that the privilege I'm, of feeling safe... Nope. Sure, absolutely. It's a very, you know, it's like you don't have to worry but about. But that's the thing, though. Like, safe bombs. From bombs um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, or yeah, they the party members they absolutely don't feel safe, and it, it, being safe from bombs is one thing, but being safe from like getting murdered is another. Like, so you can't, Gestapo, for instance, you yeah. can't be seen to fall in love with somebody. That's considered against the party, uh, against the party period. So if you get married, you have to prove that you don't actually love that person, but you just want to get it on and have babies. Like, that is all you want from this person. And, like, live your Which is life. like, the opposite of how you get a green card now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's just, it's very interesting. And the way that the, the main character in 1984, I think this is particularly relevant, his main job is to go through historical documents and rewrite them according to the current party line. So, oh, we're in, in uh, at war with country A. Just kidding, we're at war with country B. So he has to go back through all of the historical documents and pamphlets and books. He has to call in the books that say they were at war with country A and change them all, reprint them to say that they're at war with country B. And they've always been at war with country B and country A has always supported them. And like... Yeah. That happens, like, in a, in the middle of a speech at one point. This guy is, like, giving a speech against country A. And then mid-speech, he gets a, uh, you know, someone talks to him. He's like, country B is the worst. And then everyone <laughs> in the audience is like, oh, my God, I'm carrying banners against country A. Like, it must be a plot by country B to confuse us. And, like, they just, it was... Can you see this happening in, in real world, too? Like... Like, fake news, like, oh, uh, Lion Hillary, her emails, like... Yeah! It's insane! And then, like, all of a sudden it goes away, and you're like, Okay, well, so what that about wasn't a problem, apparently? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, it's... I think, um, one of these... Yeah, it's like mass culture used to manipulate people to conform. Yeah. Um, agents of power invisible and difficult to contest. Like, you can't say how that was happening... But you see it happening. Yeah. You know? Well, and everybody knows, like, these little morsels, too. That's the thing I've noticed a lot where it's like, you know, people want to enter into these discussions, but it's like you're only given, you know, it's like, well, I heard this. Well, where'd you hear that from? On uh, the internet. Okay, but who's your source? Like, <laughs> yeah. where did they get it from? Where's the like, internet you know, source? This, yeah, so it's this idea that like what you're what you're being told is the truth, as opposed to like thinking knowing, critically. Yeah, yeah, thinking critically and getting the whole story. And something we haven't touched on yet, but I think is a big part in um, 1984 is like surveillance too. So this idea yeah. that you're like your privacy is <laughs> a, an easy sacrifice if it means your security. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and they have these uh, TVs basically in their living rooms that not only cannot be turned off and constantly broadcast propaganda, but also have a camera and constantly observe you. Yeah. Kind of like... So that being, a, like, getting like a caught. Like a big cell phone, almost. Yeah. Kind of. And that's kind of, like, you kind, kind of find out... kind of carry pockets all the damn time. Right? Just FYI. You find out that, like, 
he's slowly turning into our conspiracy <laughs> theories episode. Maybe it's just me. Like I, I'll, I'll be happy to take on that role. Well, so for the 1984, <laughs> I find what death. was interesting about that is that he goes into a parole person's home and they don't have one. And he's just really like shocked that they don't have one because it's mandated by the party for him to have one. But it turns out that it's not, that he just, that he bought one because that's what you do. Like it was the newest technology. And then it keeps on getting replaced with newer and newer technology. Eventually it had a camera in it. Apple. Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> like, Apple iPhones. And the parole was like, yeah, I don't have one of those. And he's like, I just don't understand your life. Like, you don't have one? Which is exactly why when people are like, oh, I don't have a phone, everyone is kind of freaked out. Like, yeah. are you a Luddite? Yeah. Are you just in between phones <laughs> yeah. at the moment? Listen, like, did I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have a smartphone for like a long time. And everyone was treating me like I was a kindergartner. And I was like, there's a reason I don't have a smartphone. It's not that I just don't understand smartphones. Like, <laughs> I understand them more than you do, probably. Like, and that's why I don't have one. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, dude. I have one now, by the way. Thanks. I was about thanks to say, yeah, you've, you've fallen. Yeah, mass culture manipulating individuals. Thanks. Yeah, status quo, Emily. <laughs> so let's. Also, be sure to set all your updates so we know exactly where you are and what you're doing all the time. <laughs> That, yeah, you know please, what? Please check in. Our brother just did that. He sent a uh, um, Gabe did. He sent us uh, like uh, here is where I am, and like I can find him geographically at any time now. And I'm like, why do I need this, Gabe? Gabe is like the ultimate grid person. He's like on the grid, yeah. on the grid. He, he wants all of his life to be like logged into Google as much as possible. He's all about the quantified self. So like he's like <laughs> all taking his apps. He, yeah, he's like always running, like all the food he eats, like yeah. his sleep patterns. Yeah. So he's a really great example of somebody, when we were talking about Brave New World, like he's a great example of the like, no, yeah, take your pill, let's fuck. Yeah. You know, like he's exactly. totally fine with it. <laughs> yeah. He's totally fine with it. Is that hurting him? I don't think so. Like, I, think I wouldn't call will. his life dystopic. You yeah, know? I would not describe his life that way. But we're also, we need to like push through because there are other, like we were talking about like the Hunger Games. Oh, Yeah. And I think that would be a really good one to touch on now because you see that great divide between, right, like the first district and the, right, you know, like, and the other districts. So you see that, like, class divide, which is something that is also, I think, a very common trait. I was just about to say. In dystopian literature is that there's the have and the have-nots. Can we think of a dystopian literature or media source where there isn't a, uh, a divide between people? Because like I think it's almost like a, a critical component of dystopian literature because it shows how it was meant to be, how the utopia should have been, because that's what the haves, like the party members or whatever. But then also the other side shows why it doesn't work at all. I think and, I have one, but I want to talk about the Hunger Games real quick. Okay, <laughs> put that on the back burner. But let's but remember Hunger it. Games first. Hunger Games. Hunger Games was a really brilliant book. When I read it, I I personally am an author, and when I read it. I just, I put it down and I was like, I'm done. I can't write any better than this. Like, I just can't do anything. Like, for a solid month, I was just, like, despondent because it was so good. And it is, it is also, by the way, Suzanne Collins, who writes The Hunger Games, also writes um, Brother Bear, which is a PBS TV show for oh, little yeah. kids. Yeah. What? Really? Yeah. 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 She writes Brother Bear and The Hunger Games. <laughs> She's just like... She's got the two ends of the spectrum covered and then nothing in the middle. Yeah. She's like, I'm just going to skip all this bullshit. Well, so Go straight to the top, baby. <laughs> the Hunger Games was really good because it represented the society that 
um, it was like a post-nuclear society. Someone had dropped a bomb. There was some sort of cataclysmic event. Everyone had become... Everyone had tried to kill people in the capital. Something happened. And, the, uh, and then the capital won and decided to punish the districts um, that they carved the country up, America, into districts and decided to punish them by having them tithe two people to fight to the death, two children, really, to fight to the death um, in an arena for everyone to spectate on. And it was, like, illegal to not be viewing the Hunger Games. And, like, they had tents set up so everyone could come. And most people watch because they're like, that is a person from my community and I want to see to make sure they're all right or, you know... I should honor their sacrifice by watching them die kind of thing. But it's also like the, the monetization of leisure as well. Like, it's like, not the monetization, that's the wrong word, but the, the use of leisure. Whatever we talked about earlier. Well, so for, for the districts, that's what it was like. But for the for the capital and like districts one and two, it was a monetization of le- uh, leisure because a lot of those people were very wealthy and they would pay money to get the contestants like extra things so like Mm. that was the whole part of the game that didn't really i think come through was that the way that they their drama that played out on the screen got people interested and if they were interested they would spend money in order to get you like medical supplies or water and several times in the first book specifically katniss kind of uses that to get supplies so she pretends to be really into Peta to kind of garner this sympathy and like this and uh, further this epic love story that she's trying to play out so it becomes like re- reality tv show yeah and she's she's manipulating that to kind of help her and Peta survive yeah but it's also they their lives really are in danger at yeah the same exactly time. and um there, there's just so many times when it's, like, about media manipulation. And she, at the end of the first book, FYI, there's poison berries, and she tries to get them both to eat it and, like, fuck up everyone's game. They're the last two Because the, they're the last two. And yeah. at the beginning of the second book, she has to kind of uh, do damage control for that act that she did because most of the people in the districts took that as, like, an act of rebellion, which it... Kind of was. was, yeah. Yeah, it was, but it was mostly like, I am so done with this shit, let's just end it. Like, that was her thing, but it was also an act of rebellion. And then she has to convince the president that, like, no, it wasn't an act of rebellion, I just love him so much that I just couldn't live without him. And she has to further perpetuate this love story. That's interesting. It's kind of like, if there was one issue, like, one social ill, quote-unquote, that the Hunger Games kind of talks about... It would be like reality TV. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Frankly, yeah. And she, it's funny because I think The Hunger Games is an interesting uh, study, specifically in how they made the movie and how the the marketing for the movie was. Because the marketing for the movie definitely focused on this love story, and like in the book, it's clear that this love story is probably not real. Like they they are in this situation, and they're definitely friends. And, like, they're probably hot for each other. But also, like, they're just too terrified to be in love with anybody. Like, or at least well, Katniss is, because this is from her perspective. And it comes across in the movies, too, a little bit. Like, I mean, they may have sold it that way in the trailers or whatever, yeah. but, like, you can kind of get that feeling when you watch it. Yeah, and I think, I think I'm think i just really speaking about the, the marketing and, like, how they got 
consumer buy-in to this movie for people who hadn't read the books. They're like, there's this epic love story, and they're just in love, but they have to kill each other, and blah, blah. And, like, it's so interesting yeah. that that is exactly how they market the Hunger ga- themselves in the <laughs> Hunger Games. When you think about, that's, too, that's like... That's interesting. Yeah, it's a what is, Yeah. I think going back to that, like, what is being sacrificed for the sake of your safety, and it's like... Well, I mean, you know, so by sacrificing these two people, what what do the districts achieve? You know, and yeah. that's like, okay, by giving this up, do do we secure our safety from the districts one and two? Like, do they give us by like um, what's the, by complying by complying with this thing? We are acknowledging that in the past we did something wrong and we deserve this punishment, yeah. and and so it's becomes a way to like show humility so that okay so you don't get crushed you don't get crushed yeah Yeah. so it's like the fact that human life and children specifically or young teens is a totally okay sacrifice to make yeah for the good of the community for the good of the community it's just like oh yeah my privacy is an okay thing to sacrifice if it means that like i'm being watched over in a and in that and that is what keeps me safe right yeah well and even going a little bit deeper than that, like, what does Katniss uh, sacrifice to 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 keep going through the games and like be alive at the end? She sacrifices like her own opinions and her own like like her body autonomy, obviously, because she's ha- she's being forced to fight, but her her mental autonomy as well, yeah. because she's being forced to perform and play this game, love with Petra, Peta, whatever his name is, Peta, yeah, and even though you know, obviously, she Peta. doesn't want to. And, like, I agree because um, after the whole PETA thing, this whole love story is, like, played out. It still exists. And even when she's on the side of the the rebels, she has to play this other part of this, like, rebel queen. And she's like, mm-hmm. I honestly just volunteered to save my sister. And I would rather <laughs> just live in the forest and, like, hunt for my food and fuck all of you. But, like, she, I don't want to live in society, period. Yeah, and, like, but she she has to keep playing this, like, symbol, the girl who's on fire, you know, because that is what is bringing everyone together. It's the it's the rallying point. Yeah, yeah, and, like, and these people are manipulating her as much as the president was manipulating her, and she knows it, but it's also, like, towards a good end. And it turns right. out, spoiler alert, at the end, uh, the the people, the rebels who she's working for end up bombing a bunch of children and making it look like it was the president. And so they, she knows that that was uh, the rebels' bombs because she knows what it looks like. And so she's, like, desolate. Like, all of this that I've worked for is, like, I'm just supporting another regime. And then the rebel president is like, let's do another Hunger Games except use just the uh, Capitals children. And she's Jesus. like, what the fuck? It's just happening. <laughs> what have we been fighting for? And I, the one thing that I don't understand about the Hunger Games is she did not argue about it. She was just like, yeah, let's do that. And then she murders the president. <laughs> just oh, like, okay. Yeah. Well, because I think maybe at that point, like, she's been through so much and, like, seen so many, like, weird ways you could go. She's like, no. no. <laughs> like, this cannot You're done. be done. Yeah. And, like, yeah. she, there's this like, huge there's no ceremony this. where she's again being used as this symbol. She's supposed to execute the old president with her bow, which is her symbol as well. And she's like, yep, I'm not going to execute him. I'm going to execute her. And then she's like, I'm done. 
I'm gonna go live in the forest with my husband. Like, you guys figure y'all this shit this. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, y'all can work this out. So anyway, I th- I think the Hunger Games is really well done, um, and I think, like you said, we were talking about what dystopian stories don't have that divide, and I was gonna say the Lego Movie. Incorrect. Really? Maybe I don't remember it correctly. Yeah, the Lego movie is a great dystopian movie and also just a great movie yes, in general. Really it's like good. fantastic. <laughs> Everything is awesome. Yeah. It was yeah. yeah. But like it has a lot of dystopian features like um you know, the media that makes everyone conform, you know, that everything is awesome song. Right. Um Oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like um constructed realities that like literally constructed out of Lego bricks <laughs> that make everybody in like follow the status quo. Your leisure time as like a uh, whatever we talk about that a lot. It's all in there, um, but the the divide is between like everybody in the world and the master builders. There there is a group of master yes. builders. They live in Cloud Cuckoo Land, and they're like the 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 hunted group, the, yes. the out group. But I think Th- that they would be like your scientists and your poets and artists and the th- like the free thinkers who are like, hey, this is. You shouldn't be controlling everyone. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, um, sorry, they don't, the average person, whoever that guy, I forgot his name, the average guy that is the main character. Oh, um, Emmett. Emmett. Emmett doesn't know that those people exist. And most of, you know, his cohort doesn't know that those people exist. Maybe that doesn't matter. Okay. All right. I guess maybe, okay, I can see what you're saying. is like he was happy until he discovered their existence. Yeah. And like, and, but then that that's what makes the story dystopian. It doesn't, like... Otherwise, it's a perfectly fine, like, life. Right. So I guess, like, question is, like... Can it still be dystopian if, like, you're you're happy in your ignorance? I guess, yes. I mean... Can it? Like, then, then like, anything can be dystopian in literature, almost. Well, I mean, I, there has to be a turning point where you realize you're unhappy. Or you realize there's something else. Um, that you're not getting. Where you, you kind of see behind the curtain. Yeah. yeah. The veil is lifted, kind of. Yeah, because he, you know, he finds that piece, and then he's like, oh, there's so much more to this than I thought. Yeah. But like, well, and another like, character, too, who is, like, cre- like pushed into the savior role, like, like Katniss, and like John from A Brave New World, where it's kind of like... Well, it's... Here, you know, well, because he tried to be like, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be, right? But, like, yeah, so Emma, it's like, like, you're so special. And he's like, am I? (laughs) And so you see this person who's, like, was totally fine with going into the status quo and has to define himself so that he can be himself, but also what these other people want. Um, Yeah, I think... I think I still think that like Brave New World is is like the closest example we have of like everything's cool except for one guy, you know. Yeah. And like I forget what the savage groups are like, but they they kind of get along with themselves, right? Like they don't like. Care um, so the way much. I remember it though is they're more like the way we think of like kind of how we exist today, actually, where you know it's kind of like yeah, you form like everybody has a home and you form these bonds with people and you have prostitution, which is like frowned upon but totally a thing and you have like married couples with children and you have you know so it doesn't sound so bad is my point like i mean they're, they're living happy. in you know not good conditions but it's like imagine our society today just in like worse conditions whereas like the, the better quote-unquote better society mm. is without those connections 
without sure. those emotional connections. And that's part of why John feels so weird. Well, frankly, I just think that like that that would actually be a utopian society if it weren't for big John being the main character. Like if we had followed any other character, it would be like I think fine. perspective is a lot of it, you know. Yeah, um, for sure. From and I think that's what the author's trying to present to you, right? Like, do you think like John? Like, we are seeing a lot of this through his eyes, so it's you know, it's like, hey, do you see this going on around you? What do you think about it? Do you think this is right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if we're talking about like big pictures, I think that uh, a lot of what is is interesting about dystopians is like trying to um what happens when you don't take responsibility for your own life like what happens when you just do what everyone tells you to do mm. um and like yeah when you, when you follow the status quo yeah. like how you can be kind of tossed about yeah and it's kind of like well, in some yeah. of these societies no one is taking responsibility for their individual actions and in that mm-hmm. case they're they've created this society that is imperfect and flawed and corrupt and you get people, well, okay, so, like, we have to talk about V for Vendetta in the sense that, like, that's a huge part of V's mission, I would say, that he, obviously, that he's given himself, but <laughs> is to hold those people accountable, you know? So you find all these people who are like, I was just following orders, I was just doing what I was told. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and who does who does that sound like? Oh, all the people... Nazis. Who were, it were, yeah, were <laughs> rounding up people and gassing them, saying, like, oh, I didn't know what happened. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Like, the, you know, what? so he's he's making, he's holding them accountable and forcing their deeds into the light, but he's also doing it on a very individual level of, like, I know you did this. Yeah. You need to own up to it. That's one of the most, uh, I think, uh, affecting scenes in that entire movie is when he first addresses the public, and he's like... Mm-hmm. You did this. I know why you did it. I know that you were scared, but you have to take responsibility for this. And I yeah. think that's definitely like a message that Americans need to hear right now. Like, yeah, you absolutely. did this. Like, you need to maybe not, you know, black you can America, make it better. the rest of America be like, you did this and you need to take responsibility for what happened here, you know? And like, you can't just wait for someone else to fix it. You have to fix it. And I think a lot of people have gotten that message, but I think more need, people need to hear that. Yeah. And there's always, like, a... I mean, I don't know if there's actually, like, studies that show correlations, but, like, throughout history, as we've been talking about, you can see that a lot of times with any, like, any kind of progression, like, serious push, whether it's, like, with, you know, racial issues or scientific findings mm-hmm. and things like that, there's there is a push against that so that they're the people that embrace that and see that as progress and then there are the people who resist and choose to either not not accept that information or you know contest it and and so you you know like that's why you see like you know one of the things that happened in American history with the civil rights movement is you see these these what we now think of as, like, basic fundamental rights being, you know, yeah. like, given to, you know, black Americans, you that you see this rise in violence and, you know, m- like, people being murdered and people, be, you know, and children being accosted and schools and churches being burned. You see, and, and that's something that gets, again, like, how you play that out in the media, yeah. right? So that control of 
how these things are presented to the public. And I, I do want to mention that there's this, uh, I, my degree is in international relations, and there's this theory that I don't remember the name of, but it basically, sh- you have this chart of, like, economic progress of a nation, of two nations. And, like, the chart of, for instance, um, the UK and India, it will go, like, India was much lower in terms of economic progress, and then at a certain point they start going up. And they, um, you see the chart, and the the line for India intersects with the line for the UK, and at that point is when they had a war. And it's just like it's very telling that like their economic progress had has led them to clash with an, another country that had dominance over them. And that's kind of I think how it's happening. It can also be applied to social groups and to. Um, cultures within a nation within a country mm. um so like for instance african americans are becoming more affluent they're becoming you know more participants in this society despite everyone's best efforts and i think they're they're you know that line that is coming up to meet with their oppressors and it's you know it's causing problems and i think it will cause problems in the future can you um, i guess can you clarify really quick that like that's maybe not a bad thing <laughs> like, no it's not a bad thing i think you know that's what's happening and it's it has to get worse before it gets right better. okay that's really... that's the thing that i wanted to hear <laughs> yeah sorry i'm sorry if i sounded like i was you're just like yeah those african americans are getting richer and doing stuff <laughs> and like there's going to be problems if they try and get all uppity like us that's definitely not what I meant. <laughs> I just like it. It's natural what's happening, and we just need to, you know, get through it with the least amount of, you know, bloodshed and and uh, hopefully with good relations. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I understand um, what you're both saying. Like, and it gets worse before it gets better is, I think, a great way of describing it. Um, yeah. Um, and I think that was the whole point, like, V was trying to make. Mm-hmm. is like, the only way this is going to change, like, Emily was saying, was, like, take responsibility and yeah. and, and make a change. And that, even even if you're not having, like, physical violence, change is violent, you know? It can be, You're yeah. shaking yeah. stuff up and you're, and you're making, you're pushing people out. And so even if there's not, like, a gun being fired or a sword being drawn, it's still kind of a violent act because you're yeah. taking something and shaking it and making it. Uh, different and you, so it's like you you have to do that and you have to understand that that's necessary and mm-hmm. but that you're you're you to a certain degree are in control of how that goes yeah you know? and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be violent as in people dying right. but like violent as in cultural wars and like you know, people arguing and people. I mean, I think that's a good and healthy thing. Did, to like be having right like now. discussions and debates and. You know, rebuttals and that sort of thing. And people's assumptions being challenged and, like, destroyed because that is a big problem, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, so that that theory that I was talking about had something to do with hegemony. I don't know if you guys know what hegemon, what's a hegemon is. but um, It's this theory that uh, was coined, I guess, by Antony Gramsci. And it's about the ruling class manipulating the value system and the mores of a society in order to gain consent of the governed. Yeah. So okay. basically, a lot of people say that America is a hegemon because uh, hegemony because our cultural values have been spread across the globe 
in order to make us a dominant force in the world stage. And so it's not necessarily that we're making everybody do things, but we are like through trade and through economics and through our culture, like movies and music, we are making everybody want to do what we want. Right. And it's a way in which, yeah, government wins consent to its rule uh, from its subjugates. So I think that's an interesting thing to think about in this whole thing. Thank you for tuning in, listeners. This episode went a little long, so as not to overwhelm you, we are releasing the second half on May 22nd. Don't forget, you can send us your comments and suggestions at suggestions at lifenarrated.com. Are you being watched by a faceless amalgamation that represents authority? Did you volunteer for a blood sport and now are stuck in a showman's on reality TV? Do those around you believe everything is awesome, but you have this feeling that it's just like not? Let us know. Email suggestions at lifenarrated.com. Uh, my name is Emily, and I am not a gum swallower. My name is Lauren, and I am your leader. <laughs> Dang it, Lauren. I'm not... <laughs> Ours are always... Can we do, can we do this again? I, we got to think of something. I forgot. Okay. I didn't think of any. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I was oh, going to oh. be Benevolent Overlord. Okay. But... You can be Benevolent Overlord if I can be Big Brother. Okay. Okay. There you go. Sorry. Um, okay, take two. I Now I have to think of something better than Gum Swallower. <laughs> <laughs>